Let's open the scriptures to the gospel, or rather the letter of John, 1 John chapter 3, in the Pew Bible, page 1303, 1303, 1 John chapter 3, and then Ephesians chapter 6. And both readings connect with the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer regarding temptation and our prayer to not be led into its grip. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, page 1245 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians 6, and read there about the spiritual battle as the Apostle Paul relates that to us. Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 563, where we will deal with the explanation of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 127. There we ask, what is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? That's as far as we'll go today, and we'll save the remainder of the prayer for the next time, God willing. In response uh, to the preaching, we'll sing about the Lord's defense of His people, of us, in the spiritual battles. Psalm 35, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we approach the last of the six petitions, it strikes me that once again we've hit upon one that we don't seem to articulate or to pray very frequently. We found something similar with the second and the third petitions about uh, the kingdom and about God's will. But it seems to me that I also don't hear this one voiced too much among us. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Is it something you pray for regularly? What I do hear frequently is something like this. Lord, keep sin and evil far away from us. Or, Father, keep us from sin. And perhaps those prayers are, are meant as a, a form of the sixth petition, but let's slow it down and ask, are we, are we really asking of the Lord the same thing when we are asking Him to keep sin and evil far away from us? Is that request actually something the Scriptures teach us to pray? Well, I, I looked, but I couldn't find that way of praying in the Bible, and it occurs to me that we might inadvertently, to be sure, we might be hindering our walk with the Lord by praying, Lord, keep sin and evil far away from us. 
Now, why would I say that? I mean, nobody wants sin and evil, so wouldn't that be a good prayer? Well, I wonder if we're praying that prayer with a certain assumption in mind, the assumption that sin and evil are out there. Lord, keep sin and evil away from me. Don't let it come close. It's, it's out there. But remember what we saw last week in Lord's Day 51. As Christians, we remain still sinners, wretched sinners. Paul says that, Romans 7. 1 Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. That's him in his rescued, saved Christian state. Just read Romans 7 for the inner battle. So we remain sinners. And if we get into the habit of thinking that evil is out there, that sin is out there, and we want God to keep it at bay out there, well, we won't be very much on guard for the sin that lives in here, will we? Father, lead me not into temptation for this old heart of mine, this sinful heart of mine would turn on me in an instant if you would let it, O Lord. So this sixth petition, like we've seen with all of them, it, it goes deep. It puts the focus not on sin in the first place, but on temptation. Not on evil that could hypothetically approach us or get to us, but on the fight against evil that we face all the time, every moment of every day. For our hearts are constantly in a state of battle. So I bring you this word of the Lord, framed as a prayer. Father, train me to fight temptation in your Spirit's strength. Train me to fight temptation in your Spirit's strength. This involves knowing the fighters, and secondly, putting on the armor. Well, if we understand anything about this sixth petition, it needs to be this, that we are, every one of us, in a fight, a spiritual fight. The Lord Jesus is, is teaching us by way of this petition, lead us not into temptation. It's a plea for God not to give us over to the grip of temptation. Temptations happen all the time. Because sin lives in our hearts, we are constantly faced with a struggle of the heart moment by moment. Again, I refer you to Romans 7 for that struggle. And then there are what Paul calls in Ephesians 6, the spiritual forces of evil. The Lord Jesus warns us in Matthew 18, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations should come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. So, whether it's from the outside or from the inside of our hearts, there is always temptation to sin coming at us from close by and from far away, which is why the Catechism describes our situation as spiritual war. Do you think about that? Do you, do you realize that, beloved, that you and I, we are in daily in a spiritual war? We are in a fight to the death so we need to pray the sixth petition fervently so that we don't go down to defeat. Well, if we are in this fight, and we are, who are the fighters exactly? Who are the combatants? Any 
army general will tell you that the key to winning the fight is to know your enemy. Who are you fighting against? How can you overcome the enemy? And it turns out that in this fight, there are three enemies we face, ourselves, the devil, and the world. That's unbelieving people. And the first fighter on our radar has to be the one closest to home, ourselves. So how well do you know yourself, brothers and sisters? How, how well do you know your own sinful heart? How strong am I, are you, when it comes to confronting or being confronted with temptations and battling temptations? One of the biggest dangers is that we can overestimate ourselves, that we think we have the ability to discern danger easily and turn down temptation without too much difficulty. And if we feel that we are strong enough, then we can maybe even take it a step further and go on the offensive and go out looking for a fight. We don't mind putting ourselves into a place of temptation or, or difficulty and we, we say to ourselves, oh, I'm strong enough. I'm, I'm strong enough not to give in to sexual desire. So it's okay if I'm alone with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not going to fall into that sin. It's okay that I have my laptop in my bedroom and no filter on the internet. I'm not going to visit those sites. I'm confident that I won't get drunk or, or get high if I go to that party. I can hang around the guys after work and go out for drinks. I'm not going to fall into their lifestyle. I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody in an argument, so I'm going to challenge my atheist classmate at university to a debate. But is that what the Bible says about us? Are we as strong as we think we are sometimes? What does the Scripture tell us about some of the strongest believers in history. Think of Abraham. Abraham, the father of all believers, as he's called in Romans 4. Didn't he struggle hard with deceit and a lack of trust in the Lord? He, he lied on at least two occasions out of fear, and he took a second wife because his trust was weak. Or think of David, the man after God's own heart, a man on many occasions an inspiring example of a model believer, but when it came to the pretty woman bathing next door, how quickly he gave into lust, became an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer, and one who covered it up for at least nine months. And what about Peter, New Testament, that enthusiastic and stalwart follower of the Lord Jesus, he boasted that even if all the, follower, the, the disciples were to fall away from Jesus, he would not. And yet on that very same night, he denied knowing the Lord three times. Scripture is telling us exactly what we confess in answer 127. In ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Paul says somewhere in one of his letters, beware lest you think you stand lest you fall. So brothers and sisters, we need to know ourselves. Know your weakness. Run from temptation. Pray that God will protect you when there is nowhere left to run. We should never seek out 
a fight against sin, we should be on the defensive. We should be running because of our weakness. So, we are weak, and fighting our inner sinful heart is a forceful, difficult battle. What about Satan? He's one of the other combatants. Well, the world thinks Satan is imaginary, but the Bible tells us he's very, very real. Jesus was personally confronted by the devil in, uh, a number of times in his ministry. Paul mentions in what we read in Ephesians the schemes of the devil. He speaks about the flaming darts of the evil one. So this creature called Satan exists as a fallen angel. He has a great deal of authority. He's powerful, and he's on the attack against God's people. He wants nothing more than to throw down and consume people who believe in Jesus. Well, how does Satan go about doing that exactly? What's his, what are his methods? Well, Scripture tells us he has a, a variety of tactics. He can come with, with human armies to physically force God's people into submission. He can use police forces and all kinds of military forces. He did that, for example, in Egypt and Babylon. He does that today in China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, where being a Christian will get you arrested or worse. But Satan can also come with the opposite approach, where he lets Christians become prosperous, even wealthy and famous. Instead of coming against them with a heavy hand of outright persecution, the devil can turn us into soft, pliable Christians, ready to bend to any kind of teaching, just so long as our peace and comfort and material possessions remain intact. He can make us very, very soft. This is an especially devious trick because as Christians become soft and sleepy, they find it harder and harder to identify the enemy. At least when Satan comes against you with physical force, the enemy is clearly marked out. If you're in China or North Korea, you know where the devil's working. You know where the enemy is. But in Canada and the U.S., it's not always so clear. And in other Western countries. When health and wealth are used, when living the good life is part of his strategy to weaken us, it becomes very tough to see what is black and what is white. The Israelites suffered this same thing in the days of King Omri and Ahab. You can read about that in the book of Kings. That was a time for great wealth for the Israelites. They were at peace. They were having a good life. And during that prosperous time, they couldn't see anything wrong with what Omri and his son Ahab introduced, namely the worship of Baal, the false god of Jezebel. They thought that was a good thing. It was all part of their prosperity. Well, how many people today haven't fallen into the same kind of trap? How many of our own family members and church members have just walked away from God and His church because they find it more attractive in the world? Satan is not forcing them out with a club. Not putting a gun to their head. He's luring them out with seduction, and he's very, very good at it. So victorious was Satan in the days of Ahab that Elijah thought he was the only one left. Imagine that. He thought, he thought there, was, there was no other believers. 
And out of all the hundreds of thousands in Israel, it turns out the Lord did spare some 7,000. That's still a small number, 7,000 out of the hundreds of thousands. So let's be very warned, beloved, of the power of the evil one who walks softly in our day and in our country. He was walking softly. He calls out with a soothing voice, and he carries a big stick behind his back. And then there's allied with Satan, the third enemy, human beings who have no use for Jesus. What the Bible calls, what the Catechism calls, the world. John writes about this threat in the passage we read from 1 John 3, where he distinguishes two groups, the children of God and the children of the devil. Verse 8, whoever practices, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil... For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Children of God, children of the devil, and they are in a clash. They will be in a clash until the Lord comes back. Do we still have the sense of this battle, this antithesis? Do we understand that unbelievers are on the side of Satan, and so long as they are on the side of Satan, they are enemies of God? And they're enemies of ourselves. We live in a time when the word missional is the buzzword. For some people, the only thing that matters is telling others about Jesus. And if only we would show them Christ, then the church will grow in number. Now, of course, we have the command to preach the gospel to all people. And of course, every individual Christian has the calling to confess the name of Christ and to be a light and salt in this world. We are light and salt. That's our, our essence because we are God's children. But do we keep in mind that not all our neighbors will come? Not all of them will be warming up to the call God has his elect from before the foundation of the world, and there are the remainder, the non-elect, the reprobate. And what will happen when you speak the gospel to someone who is a child of the devil, as John writes? What will happen when you, you introduce Christ to someone who has only a hatred for God? Are we willing to accept that some unbelievers will remain what they are and no amount of friendliness or missional talk will convert them? Again, I'm not trying to be defeatist. Let's present the gospel to everyone who will listen. Let's talk, let's preach, let's bring it, let's go. But let's also be biblically real. Not everybody's going to come in. We need to walk the line of reaching out to the world without joining the world, reaching out without dumbing down the gospel for the sake of padding our numbers. So those are three, the three fighters, ourselves with our sinful hearts versus the devil and the world. Well, if we stand back from the battlefield for a moment, we'd have to say it's not much of a competition, is it? We would be losers. We would be doomed if it were not for the strength of the Holy Spirit and the protect, protection He gives 
in the armor of God. For that is what Paul is driving at in Ephesians 6 when he writes in verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Be strong in the Lord. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul had written that Jesus had been raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, far above all authority and dominion and power. That's where Christ is. That's where our ascended Lord is. He's in the highest possible position next to His Father. So powerful that no creature can move without His will. We can't be here without His will. The people out in the world can't do what they're doing without His will. And this powerful Lord Jesus, this powerful King, has poured out upon His people, upon you and me, His own Spirit to live in us, to inhabit us, so that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We do that by leaning upon the Holy Spirit. Paul will connect the dots at the end of this passage, uh, this section on armor in verse 17 when he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all power and supplication. That's how we lean on the Lord. That's how we benefit from the armor. The way we fight against our own sinful heart. The way we fight against the devil and the world that hates God. The way we fight is with our heads bowed, our knees bent, calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ for help through the power of His Spirit, and He goes to work in us. The Spirit, in response to our prayer, will st help us stand firm. He'll help us put on the armor of God, as Paul describes it. He's describing here the He's using an analogy to, to describe the defenses we have by referring to the average equipment that a soldier in the Roman army wore. The apostle was very well acquainted with Roman soldiers. Even as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he was closely guarded by one in prison. So he had a chance to observe their, their clothing, their garb very uh, intimately. And he starts with the belt. We might better translate the girdle. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the girdle of truth. Now, what's a girdle? Well, older hockey players among us will appreciate what a girdle is. Underneath the clothing, uh, at least when I played hockey, and I think some of the older guys will know that, underneath the clothing, a, a hockey player has a girdle around his waist, which serves to hold together the important pieces of equipment. For example, the girdle holds up the socks, socks which are stretched over the shin pads to help hold the shin pads in place. If you take the girdle away, the lower half of a hockey player's equipment would be clumsy, it would be falling down, it would even be counterproductive, it would get in the way. You can't, in the old days anyway, you couldn't, play hockey without a proper girdle. Well, the same goes with the soldier. The girdle holds together his outfit so that all the pieces of equipment function as they're meant to function. From this girdle would hang certain weapons like daggers, 
and the girdle would bind the whole suit of armor together. And now, says Paul, put on the girdle of truth. That's, that's what girds everything together. And isn't, isn't that true that everything hangs on the truth? It depends on it. The devil attacks us with his lies, doesn't he? Jesus calls him the father of lies. He, he comes with deceit. He comes with twisting of the facts. Remember Eve in Eden. Did God really say? Just gave it a little twist. And Eve was suckered. And Adam too. Well, the way to fight against the lie is to be anchored in the truth. The truth of, of God, the, the scriptures. We must be outfitted with all the, the facts of salvation, with the truth that Jesus Christ crucified. He was crucified for us, and we obtain through him the complete forgiveness of all our sins. When we've got truth like that and everything else in the scriptures, we can begin to stand up against temptation. We can see sin for what it is, just as we looked at this morning in the book of Judges. We can see that those sin promises success. Idolatry promises you the world, but it brings you only slavery. We can see that by knowing the truth, so we're not going to get suckered into going after idols. We're going to say no to the temptations. And by the power of the Spirit, we can live a holy, thankful life. So, beloved, know the truth. This has to be the, the girdle that you put on every day. Know what's in here. And understand the world through this lens. Paul says we are to put on something else. The breastplate of righteousness. Well, that would be a reference to the righteousness of God that he gives us in Jesus the Lord. A breastplate for a soldier would protect the, ch the chest area, particularly the heart. It's meant to protect a, against a fatal blow to the heart, and it is God's righteousness that will do that for us. You know, the devil loves nothing more than to accuse us, to afflict our conscience of sin and treachery before the judgment seat of God. He tries to make it sound like our case is utterly hopeless in the presence of Almighty God. You're guilty, he says. You remember that sin. I know what you did. And he brings to mind all the sins that we did, and he makes us think that we can never have forgiveness, that we can never be right, never acceptable to the Lord. It's a, it's a, a brutal attack. It would be a fatal blow if all we had was our own defense. But Paul says, the Spirit says, put on the breastplate of, right, of God's righteousness. Stand behind, be protected by the righteousness that God gives you in Jesus. His righteousness will protect you from the devil's accusations. The blows of Satan cannot reach our heart when we are protected by the righteousness of Christ because he was obedient to every one of God's commands and he paid for every one of our sins. That's the breastplate you put on. And the devil's accusations bounce off. Then there's some footwear. 
says the apostle. Put on, he says, the readiness of the gospel of peace. Well, good footwear is essential in hand-to-hand combat. It gives you stability and mobility. You need to be able to stand firm and fight. You also need to be able to dodge and avoid blows. And the gospel of peace allows you both that stability and mobility. For when you have peace with God, you will not be easily shaken. You will not be made to doubt. When you stand not in your own strength, but in the good news of peace with God, then you will not be moved by the devil's temptations or by his threats. You'll recognize false teachings for what they are, and you'll sidestep them. Your mobility will allow you, allow you to avoid the jabs of the devil. You know you have peace with God through Jesus. You don't don't have to fall for his threats. And alongside all of that armor, says the Holy Spirit, take up the shield of faith. And then he adds a specific purpose, verse 16, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now these shields of the Roman soldiers were quite large about two feet wide and four feet tall, large enough to protect most of the body when it was held in in front of the soldier. They were made out of wood, and they were generally framed with, with steel. Shields, you can understand, were indispensable for warding off the, the sword blows or jabs from spears and also arrows from archers. Well, it's especially this last function that Paul has in mind because he references arrows, and and notice how dangerous the enemy is. He says, the devil and his demons, they shoot not only darts, that'd be like an arrow, but also flaming darts. He lights them on fire. Then he shoots them. That makes them doubly dangerous, for even if the arrow didn't hit a man, it could set fire to whatever it would strike. So if it got into a wooden shield, the shield would light on fire, or it could and the soldier had to throw that shield away, then he'd be exposed. So when fiery arrows came flying your way, you knew you were in trouble. But the shield of faith, says Paul, the shield of faith can extinguish the flaming arrows, which means the arrows just sizzle out or fall to the side, unable to hurt or do damage. It's... It's it's as if the the shield is soaked with water, and as soon as the flaming arrow hits, the flame is doused and the danger evaporates. That's what faith in God does, says the Spirit. Satan will come with his many tricks. He's got a bag of them, many temptations, his flaming arrows. But faith looks to Jesus Christ constantly. I trust in God. I trust in God alone. Psalm 46 God is our strength, our shield and tower. He will defend us by his power. I don't even know necessarily how I'm going to get out of this jam, but I know where I'm going to look. I'm going to look to the Lord. And he will defend my cause. And the flaming darts go out. Well, Paul writes about two more pieces of armor. There's the helmet of salvation which protects our head from fatal blows. Again, a hockey player will know the value of a helmet. You, no head can stand a 
serious hard hit, lest it be injured. But when we put on the helmet of salvation, when we wear, so to speak, the forgiveness of our sins and life with our Heavenly Father through Jesus, when that is protecting our head, there's no weapon that can penetrate that and hit our head. Satan and his demons, and even all the world can try to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but they will not succeed. God's salvation is absolutely certain, and it will protect, it will hold. The last piece of armor is actually the only offensive weapon mentioned in our text, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you walk through the description of armor up until now, we've essentially been on the defensive. We've been bracing ourselves with the armor of God to withstand the attacks of the devil. But now, with a sword, we have an opportunity to go on the offensive. It's the Word of God, the, the Bible, which is this sword, and that's what we need to use, as Paul wrote earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, we use the Scriptures to expose the works of darkness. In the Bible, we find the way of truth. We find the way of salvation. In the Bible, we find all the tools we need to analyze the spirits of this age, to analyze what the devil is up to in and around us in our culture. The various teachings we come across, we always go back to Scripture and say, hey, does that, what I'm hearing, does that line up with the Word of God? I'm going to check. Not with my gut feeling, but with the Word of God. That's the litmus test. That's the sword of the Spirit. We're not merely to be passive in this battle. We are also able and should counterattack, standing tall against the devil, exposing the lies of Satan so that they are neutralized as we encounter them in the world around us. So, beloved, how skilled are you with this sword? How well do you know how to handle it? If the devil attacks you with a false teaching and pretends to dress it up as a Christian teaching, and there's lots of those around, always have been, are you able to parry his thrust and counter his attack and say, well, yeah, you quote scripture there, but you misquoted. Because over here it says this, and over there it says that. You're not going to fool me. That's exactly what the devil tried against Jesus, right? Came into... The, the, the desert with a, a pocket full of Bible texts tried to trick Jesus, and Jesus countered his attack with the Bible itself. And he exposed the devil as a twister of God's Word. That's what we can do if we know the Scriptures well. That's how we withstand many of the devil's attacks. The Apostle Paul, you know, he does this very often in his letters. He, he'll even use strong language to denounce heresies. Think of how he writes in uh, the letter to the Galatians against the Judaizers. He denounces them in strong language. Or 2 Corinthians, where he attacks with the word the so-called super-apostles who were opposing him. We Christians are in a vicious battle. Beloved, we're in a hand-to-hand -hand combat. We, you know, in Canada, it's not cool to talk about fighting against each other. The, the, the word is tolerance, right? All throughout our culture is tolerance. 
That's bad news for Christians. We Christians cannot tolerate the lie of the devil. So we have to move away from the concept of tolerance and understand we're in a battle and go out there and expose the lies. Don't tolerate the lies, but expose them so that we can stand in the truth. No compromise on the truth of God's Word. That's how we get through the spiritual war. That's how we depend on the Lord to keep us from falling into temptation. In this spiritual battle, the biggest advantage we have is our heavenly friend, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're, on the, we're the ones being attacked, and we have to engage the battle, but the Lord says, the battle, the battle belongs to me, so look to me. And we can pray, Father, I can't fight this fight on my own. I can't. My enemies are too strong for me. I am too weak. But those enemies are not too strong for you, Lord. Father, train me to fight every temptation in reliance upon you, in the strength of your Spirit, whom your Son has sent into my heart. Hold me, Lord. Help me. Strengthen me. And then crown me with victory. The victory that Jesus won. Amen.